Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I am looking forward to this hour. If you've ever wanted to ask a pastor a specific question, maybe you wanted to ask your own pastor, but you were too nervous and maybe you weren't sure how to ask, well, today's the day. All you have to do is just ask any question you want. I've got a bunch of pastors here. They're all ready to go. The power panel is assembling as I speak. I've got uh, pastors Tom Brock and Tom Parrish and Pastor Justin Jepson. Agent 007 and Dr. Peter Kaftner is uh, Skyping in as well. So that is the the squad that's uh, here today. Gentlemen, welcome. Hi there, Bill. Always good to be here, Bill. Thank you so much. Hey, good afternoon. Good afternoon. So when Peter arrives, that'll be great. All right, let's start off with the passage that I've been kind of looking at lately. This is out of John chapter 5. It's what happened at the pool of Bethesda, okay? Now, this pool, um, in I guess in Aramaic, it means house of mercy, and John tells us in the text that a great number of disabled people used to lie there, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And the story was, the legend, that it was an angel would come down into the pool and stir up the water. And the first person in the pool after stirring up the water was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Any stories that this being true of the angel stirring and someone getting healed? Well, I'll just add this, and then you guys can do the heavy-duty stuff. A little side point. The thing about the angel stirring up the water Mm -hmm. in all the modern versions is in the footnote because that's not part of the original text. Something was added later. You know that because the most ancient texts don't have that verse. So so, so the whole thing about angels stirring the water is not in the original Bible. Well, and it's interesting, too, because from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there was 400 years of silence. The Lord did not speak. People did not hear his voice in that sense. And that would include what we understand oftentimes is the miracles or the angels intervening. When Jesus came along, that's what got the Pharisees upset because he was actually doing what they presumed Yahweh should be doing. But obviously they didn't see that and they couldn't see Yahweh in Jesus. Mm -hmm. I I think that's a good... Go ahead, Bill. No, Justin, please. No, I was just going to say, yeah, I think that's a really good observation to recognize that that's, you know, that's in the footnote. And I think uh, part of that's also inferred later on in verse 7 um, when, I mean, I love the way Jesus just waltzes right into this place, which for any other Jewish rabbi, he would be, you know, considered ceremonial unclean, you know, right off the bat. But he go, he goes right into it. And after he asked them, do you want to be healed? You know, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going another steps down before me. So I think part of that, uh, it's almost the the little, you know, study that I have, I've done, it's been a little while. So I'm kind of, kind of dusting off a little, clearing the cobwebs, so to speak, in my brain on it. But I think a little bit of it is kind of a urban legend, so to speak. Not that 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 maybe it did happen or people were healed. Obviously, you can infer from the text here that this man believed that that was an avenue by which he could be healed. Um, But yet I love how Jesus 
steps in and offers them a completely different and I would say a purely authentic alternative, which is um, a touch from him that would bring the healing that he um, that he uh, didn't know, maybe perhaps didn't even know that he needed. Did you ever notice how many of Jesus's miracles occurred on the Sabbath? Yeah. I mean, over and over and over, because the that was the big deal. And that for, one was on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees got yes. upset that Jesus told this man to pick up his mat and go home. Yes. And the, the <clears> bottom <throat> line is, Jesus said, look, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want that. Yeah. And so their anger was not so much the man with the mat. It was who healed him. And I'm sure they had word when they saw him that this Jesus of Nazareth had mm-hmm. done this, and they didn't like that at all. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think of many people coming to Jesus for healing. This is a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus went to him, yeah. mm-hmm. which is a powerful yeah. image, mm-hmm. and then says, uh, "Would you do you want to be healed? And the man didn't say, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. You know, I that's mean, the other thing. Isn't that an interesting question? It, it, it is. Are, some people, do they really want to be healed, or are they very comfortable in their mess and they're used to their self-pity or whatever, you know. And if they if they did have a different, transformed, changed life and a healing, mm-hmm. would they be the kind of person they want to be? Mm-hmm. You know, there mm-hmm. there's a certain, you know, uh, I'm yeah. not going to go there. But, you know, yeah. I think Peter just joined us. Peter, are you there? I am here, Bill. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Perfect. Have oh, you been, that's great. Have you I've been listening to the conversation? to your... Yeah, I've been listening a bit to the conversation. I have absolutely zero to add to it, nice. but it's been an interesting conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's why we pay you the big bucks. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I, I just, I, you know, I, I appreciate the last part of what you guys were saying. I think uh, a couple things. I mean, I've had a chance to stand at the pools of Bethesda before, and and it's pretty interesting how it's, it's right in the middle, the center part of Jerusalem, so it would have been a known place for people, number one. And number two, that when you read the early church writers, the Tertullians of the world, that might have been from the uh, second century, you look at some of the early saints as well, and their only question wasn't whether there would be healing that would be possible. Their only question at that point in time was the origin of the healing. Was yes. it a satanic healing or was it an angelic or a God-ordained healing? And I just I, I think that's such an interesting worldview that it's almost impossible 2,000 years later, at least for my brain, to crawl back into to see the world through that lens. And so some of those waters were even seen as pagan waters, and some people have wondered uh, if Jesus avoided them to some level because it was more of a pagan healing kind of place. But I, I just think we uh, we have such a thin view of the first century world in terms of how they understood things. And to the extent that we can crawl back into their mindset, I think really helps us understand the scripture rather than looking at these passages from our own lens now. So there, there's a lot there that would be pretty interesting to get into. But like Justin said earlier, I'd have to dust off some things to really dive into it more fully. Well, you're you're making a point, though. You, I, I've been to Israel once, and I went to the Pool of Bethesda. It's still yeah. there. And yeah, they right. also, they discovered the tunnel that Hezekiah built, and you can still walk through it under the uh, the uh, underground. And what is that from 600 BC, whenever he was? But <clears throat> when yeah. I was when I was about 16, I believed in God, but I really had doubts. And then uh, I read the book "Evidence That Demands a Verdict" by Josh McDowell that takes you through the archaeology and all the various stuff that that show the veracity of the Christian faith. That really helped me. Well, I think you yeah. had a, a really good point. Most of the people I know that are indifferent 
toward Christianity, atheist or agnostic, really have never looked at the archaeological evidence. There is more evidence for the Word of God, mm-hmm. especially in the New Testament as well as the mm-hmm. Old, but especially the New, that archaeologists are finding all the time. And yet most people are totally unaware of that. And, uh, you know, you're not going to hear it on the major networks that they've made this discovery, but it reaffirms everything we read in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. for instance, when was it? Was it within the last 10 years? A truck was driving down the street of Jerusalem and sunk, yeah. and they excavated it. They found the tomb of Caiaphas, yes. the, the, man, right. the chief priest of, of Jesus' trial. I mean, and, and it you know says his name. I mean, it was a kind of a fancy thing, so they think it is the original one. So it's kind of amazing. Wow. Yeah, I can't recommend highly enough you guys having a chance to travel there if any of our listeners ever would have the opportunity to do so post-COVID, because you're right, the Bible just it, it sort of explodes in an entirely different way when you're within the geography and the landscape of the land. And, and Tom, I love that you brought up Hezekiah's Tunnel, too. We'd had a chance to walk through that as well. And they have all of this, in, these interesting bits of information where the Israelites, when they dug the tunnel, they started from sort of one side of the hill, one group of them did, and then the other side uh, set started from the other side of the hill, and they tried to engineer their way so they would meet in the middle of the tunnel. And you get about halfway through the tunnel, and there's a little jaggedy jog where they missed each other by just a couple of feet mm-hmm. and kind of mm-hmm. find, find themselves at that point. But you're, you're walking, to your point, you're walking through this tunnel that was dug in order to provide the inner walls of Israel with water should it come under siege. And and it really does uh, speak to the veracity of Scripture. It's quite an experience to walk through that. I mean, the water sometimes is up to your waist, this little yes. claustrophobic, to, to say the least, but it is quite—I I just I can't recommend it enough to and sit if, on the shores of Galilee, to be near the Dead Sea, all of these places. Yeah. It, the Bible really does come to life. If Okay. P- uh, Kapsner, I thought you said you had nothing. Uh-huh. Well, <laughs> I just blew my wad, Bill. I looked a bunch of stuff up and, and, and some old photos, and then I remembered some Picked up that dust rag, didn't you? Okay, I Tom Brock, well, you, just you for the, another for the, comment. For the many people, most people are on, who aren't going to get to Jerusalem, there's a wonderful uh, video DVD series called That the World May Know. And it's it's uh, I think it's put out by Focus on the Family, reasonably priced. There's a bunch of lectures of Ray Vanderlaan, taking you to all the archaeological spots of, of Israel and then preaching at the spots. It's just a great, it's called That the World May Know. All right. Sounds wonderful. I'm going to take a break. Some great questions are coming in. Thank you so much for uh, sending me questions. Keep them coming, 877-933-2484. The pastors are in place, ready to take your question. We've got pastors Tom Brock, Tom Paris, Justin Jepson. And Dr. Peter Kapsner will be right back. Talk now available in all 50 states. We're glad to have the power panel assembled. Pastors Tom Brock, Tom Paris, Justin Jepson, and Peter Kapsner. Let me know what the questions are. Oscar, you made such a smart comment. He said, I hear hopelessness in his answer to Jesus, talking about the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. And when Jesus encountered him, Jesus gave him hope. Mm-hmm. I think with all the counseling I've done for 40 some years with people, hope is the biggest thing most of them do not have. And when you can give people hope, and I think that 
This is what Christians need to understand. We are the hope givers. Not only do we, you know, have to speak out against things that are wrong, but we should give people hope that there is really life in Jesus Christ. And if they would grab onto that, they could discover something new. So I like what the listener said. That's a great, great comment. I agree. Here's a great wow. question. Uh, on a practical day-to-day level, how do we live out Galatians 2.20 and 2 Corinthians 5.17, and yet we have an old nature that we fight? Of course, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is the verse that says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ and... I think I have a real biblical answer, and I'm very, I'm very well, serious. Let's hear it, Tom Perry. Well, we'll give it a shot here. Right. <laughs> oh, boy. Let me shoot it down. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Before we come to Christ, we have no choice. We will live out of our old nature. We will be self-centered. We will be angry. We will be try to get revenge if somebody hurts us. Now, we do it to different degrees. That is simply our nature. When we know Jesus Christ, we're a new creation. Now we have the power to make choices because we know him. And instead of letting my old nature rule, I can turn to Jesus and let his nature rule through me. Whether I do that all the time or not is a different matter. And it says nothing negative about Jesus. But he offers that opportunity, and I need to take advantage of it much more often when I deal with people. Nice word, Tom Parrish. Tom Brock, you're looking at me like you got a thought ruminating in that head. What is it? Speak. Here it comes out. Uh, The... Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I think that means, and I think the verses you referenced about uh, crucifying uh, myself and being the new creature, Martin Luther said 500 years ago, what is the daily significance of baptism? It means that daily I need to drown the old Adam in me and let the new uh, man come forth. And You know, somebody said a Christian is not someone who never falls. A Christian is someone who gets up every time he falls. And I think the battling the flesh, you know, I've got this enemy within me called the flesh. And even though that thing has been drowned in baptism, some professor told me, we learned pretty quickly he's a pretty good swimmer. Mm -hmm. And he comes back to the surface, so you daily have to bop the thing on the head. And the only thing we can, can, I mean, another professor and I didn't like this when I heard it, but he said our flesh doesn't get better as we get older. It gets worse. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't like that because I thought, well, sanctification, we are made holy as we grow in grace, which I believe too, but the flesh never gets better. The only thing you can do for the flesh is kill it every day. Right. If by the Romans 8, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that means walking with Christ, but it means when you blow it, you ask for forgiveness, bounce back up, and get back in the ring. Yeah, I, I, I just so love what you guys are saying there, that you're, mm. you're bringing the idea of some sort of power at work within us in the midst of this life that is greater than the power of sin and death. And, and that's the great imitation that happens for the people who decide to follow Jesus, enter into those waters uh, of baptism where the old person is, is sort of killed off and the new person emerges. But to your point, um, we still live in these perishable bodies. And the idea of salvation— I. It, I, it's frustrating, I think, on one level, but um, but misguided on another. When we think of salvation related to the fact that I was rescued from the fires of hell and that I got into heaven when I die, as if there's no part of salvation that has to do with this life. And of course, that's true related to our heavenly destiny. But the idea of salvation means that I've been rescued 
from the power of sin and misery in my life as having the final say in my life, mm-hmm. meaning that there's another and greater power at work in the midst of the sin and the misery that can bring wholeness and health and hope and healing. And it's the power that that Jesus, by his spirit, brings into our life that we can access day in and day out. And so to be walking in our salvation, or to use the words of First Peter, to grow up in our salvation, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, these ideas is to simply just be accessing God's redemptive resources that are ever around us, ever at hand, that allow us to put to death daily. I've been crucified with you know Christ daily. I no longer live. That that idea is happening in current time and space. It just simply means that, yes, I may be prone to deceive or I may be prone to lust or I may be prone to these things in my flesh, but there's a much greater power at work that can overcome those things than for those who have chosen to follow Jesus. If you don't choose to follow Jesus, then those things will have their final say at the end of the day. Right. Yeah, I think oh, it's it's so good. And uh, like Peter, I, I don't know if I have a whole lot to add other than I, I love how um, later in, in Galatians five, I think Paul answers this, you know that idea of how do we how do we live out Galatians two twenty. It's it's by walking in the spirit and not gratifying the desires of the flesh. And I think that's the the beautiful you know picture of the gospel in First Corinthians five seven, Second Corinthians five seventeen that we're 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 made new. So our heart of stone has now become the home, uh, has been taken out, we're given a heart of flesh, and has now become the home of the very Spirit of God. And we are actually the temple, uh, temples of the Holy Spirit um, in an individual sense, but also collectively as as a part of the body of Christ. And I mean, I kind of likened it to like, you know, before uh, we receive our new nature, before we uh, really are saved, as Peter is talking about, not just towards an eternal destiny, but towards a new kind of life that we experience right now, eternal life of knowing Jesus. Before that, it was almost like we were chained to the ground. We didn't have a choice that we were we were landlocked. We were a slave to our sin. But but the gospel cuts that chain and gives us wings in fact, gives us a jet engine to, to, to fly, to move in a whole different direction. But at the same time, that the desires of our flesh and our old nature is still like a gravitational pull that if we don't mm-hmm. activate what God has given to us in the spirit, then we're just going to, we're going to start to fall and we're, and we're going to succumb to the gravitational force of our sinful nature that we still will battle against. And I, it's going to be an uphill stream the whole rest of our time on this side of eternity. But we have been given um, the very spirit of God to live the type of life that Jesus lived while he was here on this earth. I, I heard a yeah. great sermon and this pastor said, it's like taking a shower. If I don't take a shower, after a few days, my old body takes over and I really start to stink. But if I shower regularly, um, it, it can't catch up with it. And I think that's the truth. If, if I just go my own way without Scripture, Bible, Bible reading, uh, prayer, fellowship, I just kind of start to stink and I start to fall back into old ways. But if I shower daily... Uh, in the Word and with uh, Christians, etc., it's harder for the stinky Tom Brock to come back. I think many of us don't realize how incredible it is what the Lord does to people. You know, working with people all my life, I've met bitter people. I've met people that don't know Jesus and are now in jail because they killed their spouse's lover or they stole a lot of money or they sought revenge on somebody. I wonder how many people are walking around today don't realize they're still in this world because Jesus touched the life of the person you really offended or hurt. And because that person has the new life in Jesus Christ, instead of seeking the revenge, the Spirit took over and actually worked forgiveness. And we don't talk about that end of it too often. We look at the negative because that's easy to see. But the positive 
will only be revealed in eternity. And I think it's enormous uh, what's mm. going on out there. Tom Parrish, wise statement. Thank you so much. All right, here's one. Uh, we have a first-year pastor at our church, fresh out of seminary. I love him dearly. When you were new pastors, was there anything your congregation did or they maybe could have done that were or could have been an encouragement to you? And I'm not looking for a punchline. <laughs> Oops. Uh, I'll so, I'll Tom Brock just went silent. No, I'll tell you. Yeah. I'll give you a quick sentence. If he's not that good a preacher, and no offense, a lot of guys aren't the best preachers. Fresh out of seminary, right? Right. Send him to a good preaching uh, continuing ed week where he'll really learn how to preach. I think that would, you know, uh, uh, so many pastors are wonderful pastors, but they can't preach very well. And I I would put a young preacher, especially if he is not very... uh, interesting in the pulpit, I'd send him to a week-long preaching series. I would surround him with what I would call real biblical elders. You know, the first church I went into, I was the only pastor. 32 people, the building was falling apart, and it was me. I had no idea what I was doing. Seminary didn't prepare me for that setting. I mean, I had the theology, but I didn't have the practicality, and it was too easy to get in trouble and to make mistakes. What I've tried to do is help churches understand if you don't have biblical elders, establish them. And biblical elders operate in the realm where they really hold that pastor accountable, not only to preaching and teaching, but behavior and whatever else, mm-hmm. and give good counsel on a regular basis. Because most of us uh, in ministry didn't get good counsel. You're asking for trouble if you don't have a board of elders. Oh, my goodness, you are. And it's it's wonderful when that happens. And so I would say that's one of the big, big things out there. And and uh, if this... in person is interested at all, uh, through Bill, you can get to me and I can send you really kind of an outline on what biblical elders are about. It is so important. Yeah, I agree with what the Toms have shared. I would say I think that the most important thing a congregation can do um, is to commit to pray uh, for Mm -hmm. their pastor and their elders. And I would, for this listener, um, help help your new pastor organize what um, what's called a pitker, a personal intercessory team. They'll yes. commit to pray for their pastor every day for mm-hmm. a year. And, um, and I, you know, I love Charles Spurgeon, right? The, the Prince of Preachers, when they'd ask him about, you know, how, how the secret to his power of preaching, he would say, my people pray for me. And, uh, you know, he needs your prayer and, and, and the people in the pew need the practice. And so there's something about that, <laughs> Love the it. power, that, that power of prayer, um, that's going to both posture the congregation to receive what God will instill and implant in and through the pastor. And so a, a great resource, um, for this is a, is a, a book called, uh, the prayer saturated church by Cheryl Sachs. Um, that'll outline, I mean, just a super helpful, practical, um, battle plan. Uh, for really how to, to begin saturating your church in the place of prayer. And the place to begin is to pray uh, for your pastor. Good word. Thank you very much, Justin, for that good word. We'll take a break. When we come back, lots more guide talk. Again, now available in all 50 states. I don't know why I'm saying that. It just sounds cool. That sounds good. It sounds totally cool. Yeah, well, yeah, of course they can. So anyway, send questions, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. That question You've always wanted to ask your pastor, but you just didn't feel comfortable. You can ask these guys. We'll be right back. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. The 
We are here, ready to go, ready to take your questions, and there's some good ones coming in. Thank you for sending questions. Don't leave me alone with these guys. <laughs> I, I need questions. 877-933-2484. Don't take it personally, Tom Brock. All right. A pastor on this station said, maybe not one of you guys, a pastor on this station said, if you want to forget your sin, you should tell another person and then ask God for forgiveness. In his words, he said, reveal and heal. I believe all I need to do is ask God. This was not a Catholic person either. Comments? I bet that was me. But let me say this. Okay. I believe, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Talking about confessing to God, mm-hmm. I do think that's all you need. Agreed. However... I've met enough people, myself included, that sometimes you wonder if God has forgiven your sins. Why would you say that? Because of guilt, of doubt, you know, I'm human. And so it says in James 5, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another Mm -hmm. that you may be healed. So it's healthy to pray to God. And you don't have to confess your sins to a priest or to a brother, but sometimes you just need it. You need to hear another human being say, your sins are forgiven. And, you know, Jesus said to the, the apostles, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. Jesus gave the loosing and binding authority to the church. So we do that for one another. Awkward silence. Yeah, I don't think they're yeah, in awe. I think the, <laughs> confessing our sins to God, we are forgiven. Um, he's the one who forgives. Uh, the be, only one sure. that forgives. Uh, and the only one that is, has the power to forgive. Um, but I think the, the, that, I, that reality that Tom's getting at, too, is that, you know, we don't sin in a vacuum. Um, but our sin impacts and affects everyone around us. And I think not only do we confess our sins to one another that we may be, and it says not that we may be forgiven, but that we may be healed, not only on one hand is to affirm at an individual personal level of God's forgiveness towards us and the way that we can incarnate that, that truth to one another, within the context of the body of Christ, but also um, confessing our sins to one another that um, because our sin hurts others. And so I think there's a reality of when we, when I, when I know God can forgive me of something, let's say if I sin against my wife, um, that doesn't come around full circle until I'm able to say to her, Hey, I'm sorry. Of course. Um, I sinned against you. And, and she says, you know, I, I love you and I forgive you. There's something about that that completes the cycle. Not that, God doesn't withhold, you know, his forgiveness um, in a sense, but there's something, there's a healing that does, I think, that takes place because there's a relationship that can then be reconciled, that forgiveness paves the way to make that happen. You know, all of us have habitual sins, sins that we commit over and over and over, you know, we're always sorry for it. We may go to the Lord and repent of it, then we find ourselves doing it the next day or the day after again. Those are definitely the sins you need to take before others where you get accountability, mm-hmm. you know, somebody is praying for you, somebody who's asking you how you're doing, that type of thing. I think there are other sins in our life that, you know, you guys don't have enough time to hear all of them in my life mm-hmm. that I'm getting into. But but, think, but go ahead, the small, Yeah, and thank you, Tom. The small <laughs> the, the things that, you know, whether it's an attitude or whatever it may be, but it's it's not a habitual issue. It's just something I have temporarily. Sometimes I need to confess that to somebody else as well, the Lord. But oftentimes, that's something I can go directly to the Lord with and say, Mm -hmm. Lord, my mouth got in the way again. Please forgive me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that. 
But when I keep doing the same thing over and over, I need the body of Christ. I need others to hold me accountable. And, and you know, if I, you know, um, Justin, you said that ultimately God forgives, and that's the truth. But Jesus did at the resurrection. He breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. So there is an authority God has given sure. us in the church to announce the forgiveness of sins to each other uh, when we come with, with... Again, I don't think you have to run to a priest or if you, you know, but to... It's just healthy. I, again, I believe when I ask for forgiveness by myself with nobody around, God forgives. The Lord's Prayer. Of course. Every day, forgive us our trespasses. So yes, there's immediate forgiveness through Christ, but Tom's right on the reason people are not free from their sin habits is because they're all by themselves confessing to the Lord and nobody else knows about it. Yeah, I agree, you guys. I think that's really well said. And I think if the question that's being asked is who forgives sins, does a human being forgive or does God forgive? Well, when we boil it down that way, it's a no-brainer, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's not there's not a question mark here in terms of who does the forgiving. So we we should there's no need to be quibbling about that. But there is plenty, as you said, of evidence in the Scripture of what it means to bear each other's burdens, and and as you've referenced the passage in James to confess with one another. And this is another one of those instances where if we can crawl back into the biblical worldview, they didn't see themselves as a series of individuals who were completely independent from one another that maybe, you know, decided to join a faith community through church shopping or whatever it might be. That they were the people of God connected together. I mean, if you spend any time in First Corinthians, especially chapters eleven through thirteen, it's all about the interconnectedness of the body working together. And so there is the sharing that happens among people. At least that's meant to happen. It's it's much harder to find in individualistic America than it, than it is in, in first century biblical times. But but that simple sharing of the burdens, the simple confession with one another. Uh, I just I, I would turn anybody's attention. John Piper does a great job on his DesiringGod.org website uh, addressing some of these passages and talks about how we just begin to waste away if we are not in fellowship with mm-hmm. other people in this horizontal way and we keep it all locked up and we don't share, we don't talk about it, we're not living these things out together. I think that's the invitation. It isn't so that uh, a priest can forgive or a human being can forgive you. It is the, these invitations are to share the journey with one another. Otherwise, it gets really weighty. And when we live in our own little private spaces like that, things get destructive pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. All right. The passage out of John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the question is, uh, based on this passage... I thought it might be helpful for those who don't know. I was wondering how you were drawn to the Lord by the Father or ways in general that the Father draws an individual. That's a good one. That's Joseph. He's a smart guy. (laughs) Well, who wants to answer first? Tom Parrish. I'm more than happy to answer. All right, you go first. I grew up in the church. I heard a lot of the Bible stories. I had great Sunday school teachers who personalized their faith in Jesus. It was really good. I was 22 years old, though, just got married, and my mother-in-law, who was dying of cancer, said to Jan and I, I know you go to church, but do you know Jesus? And we're like saying, well, we go to church. What's the issue here? <laughs> or do you know Jesus? And she kept bugging us on that, and she would drag us to Doug Oldham concerts and things like that. And in that process... Jesus kept pulling me, 
pulling on me. I wasn't looking for him in that sense. I wasn't. Pre- I wanted to go to Hollywood and make motion pictures. That was where I was headed. That's what I. I paid money to go to a school out there, and never got my tuition back either. But <laughs> the bottom line is, Jesus kept pulling me along the way until, in my case, I had a very personal encounter. But I think that for everybody, there's nobody I've ever met that can logically tell me how they became a believer. It's like, huh, yeah, well, you know, it's like Jesus snuck up on me. Or one day suddenly it just connected for me and and I realized who he was. And that's the drawing of the Holy Spirit. That's the power of the Father. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think to Tom's point, I mean, I think that the Father uses... um, other uh, other children, so to speak, to draw those that are lost. And so usually it comes through a relationship with another person. Um, but all the while, it's a combination of the Lord, of the Father sending somebody, but also the Father preparing the heart to those whom he's sending. And so, I mean, for me personally, I, I think I've shared this before, you know, either in God Talk or in another segment. But um, for me, I was similar to Tom. I grew up kind of going to church. Um, and just knew about God, but it wasn't until I was 12 years old where I overheard a conversation with my older sister talking about the second coming of Christ and realized, and at that point, I'd never heard of that before. Mm. And uh, I remember realizing if I didn't know something as important as Jesus coming back to earth, I must not not really know who Jesus is. Now, I'm a 12-year-old junior high boy. I'm not smart enough to put those two and two together. God did something in my heart that moment, and and I just said a six-word prayer that changed my life. Jesus, I want to know you. And uh, that was that was the initial spark of, of the Father drawing me to Christ. Yeah, that's very yeah, sweet, I'm Justin. For my earthly father, I was just going to say, my earthly father became a believer when he was about thirty-five, and he he was so shining with a new kind of light, and he came to me as a as a six-year-old kid and did the best he could to explain some things. But I, I remember my heart, even as a six-year-old, being drawn, and and I think it's a, a great conversation to have to say, what does it mean? to be not just drawn by being or being convinced by words, but being drawn by the spirit into relationship with the father. Cause as a six year old, you know, any sort of theological understanding you're going to have is going to be minimal, but I absolutely knew that I knew something was afoot uh, in my father's life as he began to explain some things. So I'm terribly grateful for that moment. I think the Lord is working on, I, here's my thought. When we stand before the Lord one day, there'll be a lot of people who will say, well, I'd never heard. I never had the opportunity. I never understood. And I think Jesus will say, come here, let's have a talk. You know, before you were born, I knew you. You know, when you were in your mother's womb, I planted in you the ability to believe in me. What about all those people I brought into your life? And I think we forget about that. And sometimes when in Christianity, we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, which I'm all for. We make it a private relationship with Jesus and not realize we're part of the kingdom of God. And we're here because of the Lord working through a lot of other people. Well, my Tom Brock, here's you got my a comment. Ex- yes, please. Yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> you know, I was raised in the church, a good church, a biblical church. No offense, a boring church, and not a lot of life or excitement. But I learned the Trinity. I learned about the Second Coming of Christ. But I remember at age sixteen, a girl at a party, Tom, I hear you're a Christian. I've been reading a book on the end of the world. How can I become a Christian? And my answer was, I had no idea what to tell her. Mm-hmm. All right, so I go to college. I'm leading a Bible study in college. And a, a young woman by the name of Pam takes me aside and says, Tom, are you sure you're saved? And I got offended. And I said, oh, I think I'm saved. She said, no, are you sure you're saved? And I said, yes. And she left, and I'm sitting there thinking, did I just lie? 
because I don't think I was sure. I do, I do believe I was saved. I trusted, I knew Christ died for my sins, rose from the dead. I prayed and believed in him. But I didn't understand that we're saved by grace alone and not by good works. And when in that time period, 1 John five thirteen was pointed out, that you can know you're saved because it's by the grace of God through faith in Christ. That's when the light bulb went on for me. I was 20. I think I was saved before then, but I wouldn't want to live without the assurance that I got when I was 20. So that was my, and again, how did that happen? It happened through a person. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I praise God that Pam was so gutsy to challenge her Bible study teacher on whether he's really saved. I was offended. I'm glad she offended me. I had a child once say to me that waking up to Jesus is like Christmas. You got five presents under the tree. You have no idea what it is. You open the first present and it doesn't make any sense. You open the second one and suddenly realize the two go together. And by the time you get to the end of all five gifts, you've got a bicycle. Mm. And I think that's how it happens for a lot of us. These pieces come yes. into our life of the Holy Spirit. And then the light bulb goes off. And then on. the light bulb somewhere goes off. And that's why you can't take any credit for your salvation. All you can do is give thanks because it was the movement of the Spirit in the first place. Yeah. All right. We'll take a little break. We still have time for a few more questions. Let me know what they are. 877-933-2484. You're listening to Guide Talk, a bunch of guys that are willing to talk. It's a pretty novel concept. We'll be right back. And now it's time for a little Guide Talk affirmation. Lovely uh, message came in from Kathy. She said, love your show. Thank you for what you had to say regarding hope. It is what is keeping me going along with my faith for the past two years because of a family member's serious dilemma. The body of Christ has given me their time, prayers, and encouragement. Praise God. Nicely done. That's the way it ought to be. Yeah, nicely done. All right. Another question. Uh, Genesis 6, did angels consort with humans in this way, sons of God with the daughters of men? Tom Brock. There's two main interpretations of that difficult text. Exactly what it says, I don't think anybody knows, but there's two interpretations. One is that the angels had sex with women and created a a race of giants called the Nephilim. Iffy. But who knows? Um, The other interpretation is there were some very tall people that had sex with women and created uh, very tall people. I guess I would lean that way. But, you know, and then people think if they hold the first interpretation, they think those are the angels that are referred to in Jude who did not keep their proper position but uh, but fell. But I, I, this is one, you get out the Bible commentary or the ESV study Bible and you read it through carefully because some stuff in Scripture is just not super clear. You're exactly right about the not being clear. Kind of position I've always taken is that unless the scripture identifies it as a story or an allegory, then I take it literally. I do too. And yeah. in that literalness, it's not clear. Mm-hmm. There's not much. Who are I can the really, sons of God? I really can't Human angel identify. Say. Yeah, yeah, I can't identify that. So on the one hand, I have to pay attention to it. On the other hand, I can't dismiss it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've also heard a third. Uh, interpretation. I don't necessarily hold to this, but it, it was just a, you know, looking at what what does 
you know, if Moses, if Moses wrote the, the Pentateuch, uh, which I believe that he did, um, then he's, he's, he's writing uh, about this, this history covenantally and talking about the sons of God and the daughters of man. So in other words, it would be the, the sons of God um, being the people that God had chosen for himself going into the daughters of man, those whom that the Lord said that they should not intermarry or intermix with. Now, I realize historically and literally that's, that that's, this, is, this precedes the law and precedes the promised land, precedes Abraham. Um, but there was something about that idea of, of just, again, the, the corruption um, that, that was happening through the sons of God in terms of the, the, the people that God had entrusted, the steward, uh, the, the world, were intermingling with, with other nations and with other religions and, and other pagan uh, deities. And so, um, again, that's just another third interpretation that, I, that was intriguing to me. And I, as I pressed into it, I don't know if that holds, I don't necessarily holds water, but um, I think this is kind of one of those Deuteronomy twenty twenty nine categories of the mysterious things belong to the Lord. We're not, we're not quite sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. There's a great passage in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The question is, what does it mean to be spiritually alert and sober-minded? Well, it means that you're going to be paying attention to what the Word of God says about spiritual reality. You're not going to dismiss it or simply say, well, that's, that's what the Bible says, but, you know, I'm, I'm into modern science, and there are a lot of other explanations. Take seriously. There's a spiritual realm and that there are spiritual answers. Sober-minded means you think things through before you do it. You actually think it through. One of the reasons uh, I grew up in the era of free sex in the 60s, and 70s. So many of my friends wound up having children uh, with with men or women that they didn't love. They, they had a one-night stand, and all of a sudden there were kids there. Before Jesus really got a hold of me, I had the ability, and I think this was from the Lord, this sober thinking, to think through, what are the consequences of my behavior? Do I really want to pay that price for the rest of my life and not do it? Well, when you have the Holy Spirit guiding you, it's much better and you can see things that others don't see, and you can do things that really honor the Lord and are a blessing to others. I think sober-minded also means another verse from Paul, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Sober-minded means I know there's an enemy who's after my soul. I know I'm a sinner, and I can fall in a second. I'm going to be sober-minded, and I'm going to be really careful with the way I, I walk in this world. Well, you're thinking it through yeah. with the power of the Spirit. Yeah. Good word, Tom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, too, this is where I think the analogy of Scripture is so helpful, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And as Tom Mutter referenced, I think you can't be sober-minded without the Holy Spirit. Really, to be sober-minded is, 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 in, is, in, is at least in part of what it means to have the mind of Christ, um, which, which, in other words, you're very clear on, on who God is, you're clear on who you are, and you're clear why you're here on this earth in mm-hmm. terms of knowing your priorities. And mm-hmm. so— if you're being sober-minded, I mean, this idea of being watchful, your adversary, the devil, pulls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, that, that you're on alert, um, that you're aware, that you're focused, mm-hmm. and, um, and you're not allowing uh, certain—you're not allowing things to distract you from what's most important, even good things, even necessary things. And so it's really about having, you know, having a balanced perspective, and the key to having a balance is having the right thing in the center— 
So it's really having a Christ-centered perspective um, upon life. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Justin, too, on that. If Satan's primary method for the destruction that he would desire to wreak is through deceit, right? If, if Satan is the father of lies, then to be somebody who is alert and to be sober-minded is somebody who, who does have a sound mind that's consistent with how God would see the world. And, and we can only have that consistency insofar as we're empowered by the Spirit to do that. So, so to be on the alert is to be mindful that there's probably— a lot more deceit happening in this world than we're aware of. And I don't mm -hmm. mean people deceiving us. I just mean things that would draw us astray, that the idolatry that is this world. And and so I sometimes we talk in my classes about the idea that let's just assume that we're living in an era of world history that we can call the great deceit, that that mm -hmm. um, that what is actually true about this world is that it is caught and lost completely in deception on so many different levels. And so it's going to take the believer empowered by the spirit to create a sound mind consistent with who Jesus is, to be able to be sober-minded, alert of sound mind, to be able to see through the deceit and and thus bring the hope and the love and the joy and, and the realities and, and beauty of the kingdom into the midst of that. So I think to be sound, sober of mind and alert is the ability to discern truth from falsity in this world. It's, it's the light and darkness conversation that's so often part of the scriptural themes as well. Peter, um, you've really brought something to mind. The, the word deceit... Uh, and distraction come from the same root word. And most people's deceit in their life doesn't look like deceit. It's just distraction from what's really important. And the devil's very happy when we go in that direction rather than going the right path. I like the old saying, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his knees. And I think that's the, what the verse is teaching. Just be on your knees. Can you, can you sing that, Tom? Uh, it's not a song. Well, I figured you could make, make it a song. I could have, but I, I don't think I will. <laughs> okay, time for one more question here. I have a friend that only... <clears throat> I have a friend that only reads the King James Virgin, Version, and 2 Timothy 2.15 talks about dividing the word. And to him, that means disregarding the Old Testament and placing books in an us-and-them containers. Mm. Is there a brief explanation that I might learn to help him understand that is not what the verse means. Well, I, I'll just jump in quickly on this one. Yep. This, might need, this, this might need to be a next week topic for sure on this one, but I, I think what we can safely say, if we're going to divide the old from the new uh, in a way that the old is somehow irrelevant to, to the life of Christian and believers, then we're actually disregarding the teachings of Paul, who when he says to Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for rebuking and correcting and training and all, all yeah. those things in righteousness— well, at that time, the New Testament hadn't been canonized. That wasn't until the mid-300s that we had the first sort of look at the 29 books of the New Testament. All we had were a lot of letters of Paul circulating around, some of the early accounts of the narratives of Jesus, the Book of Acts, all of those things going on. And so uh, for all Scripture to be God-breathed and to be useful for those things in righteousness in the present tense, <laughs> that's referencing the Old, uh, Old Testament where Paul is— telling Timothy to be anchored in these things. Now, there is an old and a new covenant, and we can have that conversation, but that idea that some Christians, I think, have bought into, that we just sort of do away with the Old Testament, well, then we have to do away with the New Testament, too, and reject what Paul had to say to Timothy as he was actually pastoring a church in Ephesus. Perfect three-pointer, Peter. I think if you go All to... Net. I think if you go to <laughs> CARM, C-A-R-M dot org, or COM, I think it's CARM dot org, they'll have an article on there. There is a movement that's been around for many years, the King James Only people. 
And these tend to be very conservative Christians, and the King James Bible is the only true Bible. Everything else is leading to gay marriage. So they're faulting modern translations with everything bad. And it's I'm sorry, it's just a strange movement. The, the Bible is the Bible, whether it's the King James Version or the ESV Version. Uh, it, it, the King James Version, I mean, before the King James Version, what, was there no Bible? Of course there was. What do the people do in Spain? They can't read King James English. Of course there's a Bible outside of the King James Version. Peter, I think I'd like to write a book with you, and I'm serious from what you just said. If you take the Old Testament and the New Testament, here's what I've always tried to teach people. The Old Testament is reality, but... Don't interpret it apart from what Jesus did with it in the New Testament, because he is the fulfillment of the covenant. You put the two together, it makes sense. You isolate one from the other, you got a problem. And I know we're up against the time, but just quickly, it's Mm -hmm. fascinating to me that at the end of Genesis 3, they're exiled from the Garden of Eden. And Revelation 22, it says, and now the way uh, way is open again to the tree of life. If we can't understand the old, we're not going to understand where we're Mm -hmm. headed in the new. Yep, that's right. Well, I think that's what, just real quick here, what Jesus was talking about. And he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Mm-hmm. And so we got to look at the New Old Testament the same way Jesus did. Thank you, gentlemen. Guy talk now in all seven continents. <laughs> What's what, awesome. what about on Mars and Venus? No, we're Soon. not there yet. Oh, Soon. That's okay. coming. Yeah. Thanks to Elon Musk. <laughs> all right. We'll take a little break. When we come back, hour two is just ahead. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest for the full hour. I can hardly wait. Be back in a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.